and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ilya Soman, Professor of Law at George Mason University Scalia Law School. We will discuss his article, Making Federalism Great Again, How the Trump Administration's Attack on Sanctuary Cities Unintentionally Strengthened Judicial Protection for State Autonomy, which is published in the Texas Law Review. So welcome to the show, Ilya. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no, the pleasure's the pleasure's all mine. This was a very obviously very timely paper, and it sounds like it's even more timely now that there have been further developments, which hopefully we can we can talk about later in in the interview. But for listeners who may not be that familiar with this set of disputes, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about what exactly is a sanctuary city or sanctuary state. Sure. A sanctuary city or state, for that matter, is a jurisdiction that significantly limits its cooperation with federal government efforts to deport undocumented immigrants. Uh, often the federal government will want local law enforcement to help with that process, uh, but jurisdictions that disagree with the federal government on these issues or believe that federal policies are brutal or unjust or otherwise harmful, uh, they can say, we don't want to cooperate with this. We don't want to help. If the federal government wants to do something on its own, they can, uh, but they're not going to use their state resources to assist. Right. So as I understand it, there's actually like a fair amount of like, like action on both sides of this issue. Like the sort of paradigmatic sanctuary city or sanctuary state situation is where, you know, like you say, cities or states refuse to cooperate with the federal government. It's my understanding that that some states are actually trying to force cities to cooperate, right? Yes. Like to say like, you can't be sanctuary cities. So it, it seems like this kind of breaks down on pretty partisan lines then in terms of like when cities and states are taking action here, like it's sort of like predominantly liberal or left-leaning areas are adopting these kinds of sanctuary city provisions and predominantly right-leaning states or areas are not? Yes, that's right. Uh, it's certainly the case that there's an ideological split here in that respect, but there's also an irony in that those cities and states that refuse to cooperate with federal policy in various ways they're appealing to principles of constitutional federalism that were actually pioneered by conservatives, including conservative Supreme Court justices, often over the opposition of the left. Uh, so this is an area, pretty significant one, where the ideological valence of federalism has shifted from what it might have been even as recently as five or 10 years ago, uh, where traditionally we think of right-wing states resisting left-wing federal policies. Uh, here we have almost the exact opposite. Right. Well, well, let's definitely return to that to that kind of paradigm later and kind of try to tease out a little bit sort of the origins of these kind of federalist principles and sort of how they've been applied over time. But, but, but before you do that, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how exactly it is that the Trump administration has tried to prevent sanctuary cities from sort of effectively adopting these policies. Sort of what kinds of legal tools is the administration trying to use? The administration has adopted several strategies, but the biggest and perhaps most significant is that 
they want to attach new conditions to federal grants to state and local governments. Uh, both states and localities receive a lot of different kinds of grants from the federal government, amounting to perhaps some 30% or even more of their total spending. And what the Trump administration essentially is saying is that if you want to receive these types of grants, uh, you have to comply with certain federal policies that we have created that require you to cooperate with uh, immigration enforcement in various ways. Uh, and in turn, the states and localities are coming back and saying correctly, in my view, that uh, these conditions were never authorized by Congress, and therefore the executive can't impose them on its own. Only Congress has the power to decide how money is going to be spent and also to decide what conditions might be attached to federal uh, grant to state and local governments. Uh, they have also tried to use some other mechanisms, such as this law called 8 U.S.C. Section 1373, uh, which bars states and localities from instructing their employees to refuse to provide various kinds of information about uh, immigrants they may be aware of to federal uh, immigration enforcement authorities. And there, the issue is not a matter of grant conditions, but rather of uh, the federal government simply ordering state governments around uh, what legal scholars call commandeering. Mm. Well, so in the paper, you kind of identify like three different categories of disputes between the Trump administration and the various sanctuary cities and states. I wonder if you could kind of briefly identify each one of those categories and sort of help listeners better understand the kind of the nature of the administration's attempt to prevent sanctuary cities and states from functioning, and also the sort of counter arguments that the cities and states are making that the administration is exceeding its authority. Sure. Uh, the f administration, uh, since Trump came into office in 2017, uh, has adopted three sets of measures to try to coerce sanctuary cities and sanctuary states into uh, cooperating with federal immigration enforcement policy. Uh, one of them is the executive order that Trump issued very early in his presidency, where he essentially says that all or nearly all federal funds given to sanctuary cities will be denied to them unless they comply with Section 1373, the law I mentioned earlier, which says that uh, state and local governments are not allowed to instruct their employees to refuse to turn over information about immigrants to uh, federal immigration authorities. Uh, a second policy that the administration adopted during the summer of 2017 uh, is also a grant condition policy. Instead of trying to apply to virtually all federal grants, this one is narrower. It just imposes additional conditions on burn memorial justice assistance grants, which are grants to state and local law enforcement, uh, but the number of conditions is greater than in the executive order. So the first condition is complying with Section 1373. In addition, the Department of Homeland Security uh, is required to have access to any detention facilities run by the, the states and localities so that they can determine the immigration status of any aliens being held. And finally, uh, the state or local government has to give the Department of Homeland Security 48 hours notice of the release of any alien 
uh, for whom the department has made a detainer request, which is a request that the uh, state or locality hold that person. Uh, finally, we now have the litigation over California's sanctuary state law, uh, where California has adopted a series of three laws uh, which limit cooperation with immigration enforcement in various ways, uh, and the federal government filed a lawsuit claiming that these three laws are all unconstitutional. Uh, one is Senate Bill 54, which essentially limits information sharing. Uh, 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 a second uh, is uh, House Bill 103, which requires state inspections of immigration detention facilities in California. Uh, it, uh, it inspects them on the same terms as uh, other detention facilities in the state are, are uh, inspected. And finally, there is House Bill 450, uh, which limits employer cooperation uh, with uh, immigration and customs enforcement inspections unless those inspections are required by a court order uh, that, uh, that there's a specific law saying that these inspections have to happen, but the state forbids the employer from cooperating voluntarily uh, with the uh, federal government uh, uh, on these sorts of immigration raids. Uh, and uh, there's now lawsuits ongoing on both the sanctuary state issue and also on both of these uh, con uh, conditional spending uh, grant policies that I just described. For the most part, the courts have ruled against the administration on nearly all the issues involved. Mm. So it's my understanding that most of the defenses that are being raised by sanctuary cities and sanctuary states kind of sound in federalism principles. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sort of federalism principles they're relying on and the history of those principles. Sure. Uh, so th there is two sets of principles that are at issue here. One is a set related to federal grants to state and local governments, and the other is anti-commandeering. So I'll talk about the grants uh, first. Uh, so the Supreme Court has long held it incorrectly that only Congress has the power of the purse, only it can decide how money is spent. Uh, so one set of issues in these cases is that the uh, federal government, or rather the executive, essentially making it up its own grant conditions that were never authorized by Congress. So part of it is just a separation of powers issue, but part of it is protection for states and localities against sort of new grants that, or new grant conditions uh, that the administration makes up after the fact, because it's obviously harder to get a grant condition through Congress than for the president just to decide on his own that he wants to impose new conditions. In addition, Supreme Court precedent has held since at least the early 1980s uh, that any grant conditions imposed on state and local governments have to be clearly spelled out in the text of the law in question. Uh, that prevents the federal government from, in effect, uh, taking states and localities by surprise with unanticipated conditions, and it limits their ability to, in effect, coerce uh, states and localities into doing uh, what the federal government wants. Uh, and that's particularly important uh, in, to prevent the executive from just doing it on his own without approval by Congress, uh, because then if he could do it on his own, the executive would have an enormous club to wield over uh, states and localities around the country over an enormous range of issues, given how much uh, there is in the way of federal grant money going to states and localities, 
if the executive would just pick and choose and attach almost any grant conditions he wanted to any of those uh, grants to state and local governments, then uh, the autonomy of the states would be severely compromised. The other set of issues that's at stake here is so-called anti-commandeering. The Supreme Court, in a series of decisions beginning in the 1990s, ruled that the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution bars the federal government from simply ordering state and local officials to help enforce federal law. So they can't just appropriate resources belonging to state governments. Uh, and that's an important protection for state autonomy. Uh, it also prevents the federal government from shifting the cost of its operations onto states and localities. Uh, if they want to do things, they have to either gain the voluntary cooperation of state and local governments, or they have to spend federal money using federally raised uh, tax dollars. Uh, and this is partly what's at stake in the litigation over Section 1373, uh, the law that I mentioned earlier, uh, which states that uh, states and localities are not allowed to instruct their employees to refuse to provide information to federal immigration enforcers. Uh, This is a kind of commandeering, even though it's a little bit circuitous, because it doesn't say you must cooperate. It just says you can't instruct your employees not to cooperate. But if you can circumvent anti-commandeering in this way, uh, in this particular case, you can also circumvent it in a large number of other cases uh, where uh, Congress could enact potentially similar laws saying it's not that you're directly required to cooperate, but uh, state and local governments are not allowed to instruct their employees not to do so, and that still seriously compromises state and local governments' control over their own employees and their own resources. And that's why uh, in recent months, uh, virtually every court that has considered this has either ruled that Section 1373 is unconstitutional or ruled that it should be interpreted really narrowly such that it doesn't really constrain these uh, sanctuary policies in any significant way. Mm. So, I mean, it's my understanding that these these spending clause arguments, these anti-commandeering arguments have been pretty successful in a lot of these different cases. Sort of what arguments is the, are the, the administration, the Trump administration making as to why they're not violating these principles and sort of why aren't courts finding them compelling? I mean, what, what exactly are the, is the basis for finding that the administration's actions are violating these constitutional principles? The reason why they're violating them in the case of the spending conditions is that these conditions simply weren't authorized by Congress. Uh, and Uh, The administration is essentially adding new conditions of their own. An additional problem in some of the cases, particularly with the January 2017 executive order, is that the conditions the administration wants to impose implicate so much federal money that it's actually coercive. So in the executive order, it covers virtually all grants that go to to these state and local governments. Uh, And the Supreme Court said in the Obamacare case in 2012, uh, that if the, if the conditions are this sweeping and implicate that much money, then it's like a gun to the head because the state government has no meaningful choice. Uh, a further problem with some of these conditions is the courts have ruled that they're not actually related to the purposes for which the grant was made. So uh, they may not be related uh, to 
uh, the, in, to regular law enforcement purposes in the case of the burn grant policy and in the case of the executive order, it's pretty obvious that grants for things like health uh, or culture or other things are clearly not related to immigration enforcement. And the court has said that grant conditions, even those that are authorized by Congress, must be related to uh, the purposes for which the grant was made in the first place. And that relatedness standard is pretty loose, uh, but some of the Trump conditions are so sweeping that they still violate it. What does the administration argue on this? Uh, What they have said is that uh, these conditions are authorized by some vague wording in various statutes, which say things to the effect that uh, recipients must comply with all applicable federal laws. And they interpret that as including any laws that regulate state or local governments in any way. Uh, If they're allowed to get away with this, then they could potentially tie almost any grant condition for one purpose to compliance with any federal law of any kind somewhere else. Uh, And that's why I think courts have not gone for this argument, because uh, it clearly violates the principle that conditions have to be clearly specified uh, by Congress. They can't just be uh, interpolated from vague and very broad language. Uh, The second issue that I wanted to mention, or I mentioned earlier as well, is that of commandeering in Section 1373. And there, uh, what the federal government has argued is it doesn't actually directly commandeer. It doesn't directly order states to cooperate. It just says you can't instruct your employees not to cooperate. Uh, And before the Supreme Court's decision in Murphy versus NCAA last year, uh, this was a contestable issue. But Murphy versus NCAA, I think, largely undercut the administration's position. What happened in Murphy uh, was the Supreme Court struck down a federal law, which instead of simply saying sports gambling is banned, it was circuitous. What it said is that uh, state governments are not allowed to enact laws uh, that authorize, that affirmatively authorize uh, sports gambling in some way. Uh, so it's not that they're required to ban sports gambling. Uh, it's that they can't affirmatively authorize it. And the court basically said this is a distinction without a difference because it still undercuts the state's control over its own laws. Uh, and it still uh, forbids states from enacting Uh, certain laws. Uh, And of course, the exact same thing is true uh, with Section 1373. Even though it's sort of circuitous, the bottom line is that it still undercuts the state and local government's control over your own employees uh, and tries to shift that control, at least to some extent, to the federal government. Uh, And therefore, if the circumvention in Uh, Murphy versus NCAA was not appropriate, was not constitutional, then the circumvention in Section 1373 is not permissible either. Mm. Well, so it's my understanding that these kinds of federalism-based limitations on federal authority vis-a-vis state governments are traditionally associated with kind of with the right, as it were. And here it seems as if they're being um, mobilized by the left for, you know, very kind of left leaning purposes, sort of wh- what's the re what's the basis? What's the, what's the reason for that historical association? And what if anything changed to sort of make people on the left look more favorably on these kinds of arguments? It is indeed true that 
the precedents that are being used by the sanctuary jurisdictions are primarily associated with the political right. Many of these opinions were written by conservative Supreme Court justices, such as Justice Antonin Scalia, for example. Uh, to some extent, what we're seeing is just fair weather federalism, that uh, anytime your political opponents are in power in Washington, the out party uh, will often appeal to federalism principles to try to constrain them. And then, of course, when they themselves are in power, they will often forget about those principles and uh, just argue for very broad federal authority. Uh, but there's also a systematic pattern here as well, uh, in that uh, throughout much of American history, particularly since the civil rights movement, many on the left associated states' rights or limits on federal power with policies that allowed state and local governments to abuse and oppress various racial and ethnic minorities, particularly African-Americans, but also other groups. Uh, and they also worried that uh, limits on federal authority would interfere with regulations of various kinds that they thought were necessary to control the economy. Uh, but uh, what we see in recent years is that actually uh, today it is far from clear that the federal government is necessarily the friend of uh, various minorities and state and local governments are their enemies. And of course, undocumented immigrants who are primarily from uh, Latin American, primarily non-white, is a dramatic illustration of a situation where uh, overall many state and local governments, particularly the ones where most of the undocumented immigrants live, uh, those state and local governments often are more supportive of them uh, than the federal government is. Uh, and that therefore the old uh, conventional wisdom about the relationship between federalism uh, and protecting minorities just doesn't hold true anymore, or at least it doesn't hold true across the board. This is an example of how minorities can actually benefit from limiting federal power, uh, and a number of prominent liberal scholars and legal commentators uh, have begun to point to this fact. Uh, perhaps the most well-known is Heather Gerken, who is now the dean of Yale Law School and is also very prominent liberal federalism scholar, uh, but there have been a number of other prominent liberals uh, who have made similar points as well. Uh, Jeff Rosen, the head of the National Constitution Center, is another example. Mm. Well, I mean, it seems like there are potential trade-offs here and a certain kind of opportunism on both sides of the political spectrum. I mean, sort of what has been the Trump administration's response to these kind of federal federalism-based defenses against its action? And and how have people on the political right responded to both the sort of seemingly in tension with federalism principles action of the administration and the defenses being raised by people on the left? I definitely think there's no shortage of opportunism on both sides. Uh, as I said before, fair weather federalism is a very common pattern. Uh, and I think the arguments advanced by the administration, if accepted by the courts, uh, would blow significant holes in these federalism principles that conservatives will probably uh, regret blowing those holes later the next time there's a liberal administration in power. If you look at the reaction of conservatives to these cases generally, I think a lot of conservative legal commentators have in fact been concerned about the administration's stance, and certainly libertarian ones like me even more so. Uh, but in the political arena, obviously, sanctuary cities are very unpopular uh, with the uh, Republican base, and therefore 
Republican politicians, for the most part at least, have been reluctant to speak out against these administration policies for fear of the administration's base. But I think among more sophisticated legal commentators, there is a recognition that if the Trump administration prevails uh, on these issues, uh, that it will blow a hole in federalism principles that conservatives care about uh, and have championed for a long time, uh, and that uh, obviously whatever powers the Trump administration's appropriate to itself now, uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or somebody else uh, can use next time there is a Democratic president. What about on the left, right? I mean, it does seem like from a tactical standpoint, these federalism arguments are really effective at achieving sort of short-term directed goals. But what about kind of big picture structural questions? I mean, is there any has has there been any real pushback on the left against sort of mobilizing federalism principles in this way and sort of signaling support for federalism principles uh, that there might be long term repercussions that people on the left might be regretful about? I think there's a debate about these issues on the left, but I also think that there is a growing recognition, at least in many quarters, that. Uh, the federal government can no longer be considered a uh, presumptive friend of my vulnerable minorities, uh, and states and localities can no longer be considered their presumptive enemies in the way that uh, many on most of the left thought, say, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years ago, especially during the civil rights movement. I think also uh, there may be some recognition, perhaps, among more thoughtful people on both the right and the left uh, that in a society where we're deeply polarized uh, and where there's a lot of diversity such that it's very hard to have a one-size-fits-all federal policy that's going to satisfy everybody, uh, that both right and left can benefit to some extent from having a sphere of state autonomy that's protected against federal coercion and interference uh, so that national politics does not become an all-or-nothing game where if you can get control of Congress uh, and the White House, you can control pretty much everything in a nation. Or in the case of some of these Trump policies, uh, you might be able to get it just by controlling the White House, like if the uh, president is able to impose his own new conditions uh, on federal grants to localities. Right. Well, it's my understanding that there have been some recent developments in some of these cases. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about that, the potential for some of these cases to come before the Supreme Court, and sort of maybe if you if you don't mind, like speculate a little bit about how the court, especially with all the new justices, might react to some of these questions that you know have not been posed all that frequently, in my understanding. So up to now, uh, the Trump administration has lost nearly all these cases in the lower courts, and they lost for the most part with both liberal and conservative lower court judges. There are a lot of issues where judges have uh, split on ideological lines, including with respect to some of Trump's other immigration policies. But on this area, there has been near consensus in the lower courts. However, the Trump administration recently asked the Supreme Court to review a case that they lost in the Ninth Circuit relating to the California Sanctuary State Law. Uh, and uh, the part that they want to review is Senate Bill 54, which limits information sharing uh, and therefore, in the administration's view, 
violates Section 1373. Uh, I think of the three provisions of the California Sanctuary State Law, this is the one that's actually best protected by Supreme Court precedent, including the uh, Murphy versus NCAA case decided just last year that I mentioned earlier. So if I had to bet, I think it would be unlikely that the administration will succeed in this particular effort. Uh, it's possible the Supreme Court will simply refuse to take the case. If they do take it, they might well uh, just rule more or less the same way that the uh, lower court did. Uh, of the new justices, we don't know that much about Justice Kavanaugh and his views on federalism. He has very little record in that issue. Uh, with Gorsuch, who was appointed uh, in, I'm sorry, in 2017, uh, we uh, have also not much record in the lower court when he was a lower court judge, but he did vote with the majority uh, in Murphy versus NCAA. So that's some evidence uh, that he is willing to uh work to enforce these sorts of principles. So I think if the conservative justices stick to the federalism principles that uh, judicial conservatives have supported for some time now, uh, this part of the sanctuary state law should be a relatively easy case. There are two other parts uh, which have been at least in significant uh, parts struck down by, I'm sorry, upheld by lower courts, uh, where if, if those cases get to the Supreme Court, uh, they would raise tougher issues. Uh, but that's not what's at stake in the one that the administration is trying to appeal now. Mm. Well, so in closing, Ilya, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the scenario you describe in the paper says about the possible kind of future of federalism in the Supreme Court and in United States federal jurisprudence more broadly. Do you think this is a signal of a sort of new moment or a new chapter in the history of federalism? Or do you think that it's just, as you say, kind of fair weather federalism, a kind of opportunism, use the tools that you've got, whether or not you kind of agree with them in a bigger picture sense? I think at this point, we don't know yet. It's possible that this will just be one of many episodes of fair weather federalism, but it's also possible that it will be a systematic shift. Uh, the people on the left, enough of them at least, will have decided that they do need the protection of these federalism principles uh, and that the federal government is not necessarily their friend and that these situations where the federal government is not their friend, they're not an aberration. They're, they're a problem that's likely to systematically recur uh, with some regularity. Uh, so uh, I think it may come down to this sort of question if we have a kind of transformation in American politics in the next few years where the left feels that it's a reprise, say, of the New Deal where they could dominate the federal government for a substantial period of time, then they're likely to be much less interested in federalism principles if interested at all. If, on the other hand, the balance between the two parties remains relatively close, uh, then I think there might be uh, continued interest in these federalism principles on both right and left, uh, because both could potentially view them as valuable insurance against those times when the other party controls the federal government, particularly when they control the White House. Uh, and if we remain a polarized and in many ways quite divided society on political issues, then uh, both sides can benefit from to some degree, lowering the stakes of federal politics, uh, but also from having enclaves uh, where their own party is in power, even if uh, the opposite party controls the White House and Congress. 
Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your paper, Ilya. It was a lot of fun to read and, you know, really speaks to some pretty timely and important issues. Thank you very much for having me. Put color in your cheeks. 